The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, August 10th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So today I want to talk about what I think is just the most interesting story in America over the last week. I'm really dedicating my whole show to it. And it is that Bill Murray saw Groundhog's Day on Broadway. And then the next day he went back and saw it again. How great is that? No, it's not that. It's the Google memo. James Damore wrote a 10-page manifesto. Gizmodo, on first reference, always refers to it as a 10-page screed. A few of the claims in this manifesto are inarguable. To wit, Google's left bias has created a politically correct monoculture that maintains its hold by shaming dissenters into silence. I'm going to say the kid has a leg to stand on there. Now, there are a few issues that, in order to answer the question, should James Damore have been fired, you got to go through. Here, here are these questions as I see them. One, did Google essentially set up a suggestion box within its company, tell employees they should feel free to express their opinion in the name of openness and inquiry? And two, even if they did that, uh, you know, we would certainly say there are some opinions that Google couldn't let exist, right? Like, let's say they did set up this open suggestion box, say, say whatever you want. And the suggestion is, I suggest we burn a cross on the front lawn and then have festivities around Hitler's birthday, including a tiny mustache contest, right? If that was the suggestion, you would definitely get fired. Regardless of the answers to number one and two, do they say we want suggestions and then punish the wrong suggestion? Uh, we should ask, are there any other considerations that we should take into account that would warrant James Damore's firing? So if you are constructing the flowchart at home, I'm going to ruin the whole thing by answering the third part first. Yes. Before we even look into the rightness or wrongness, the evilness or openness or unwokedness of the Google memo, let us look at number three. There are reasons to fire the guy. I'm going to quote Holman Jenkins writing in the Wall Street Journal, a column. He's a very conservative pro-business guy. The column was entirely sympathetic to Damore's views and entirely dismissive of gender parity and diversity goals. But it was titled, Memo to a Google Engineer, Hey, Shut Up. Google is fighting the diversity furies and you're not helping. Now, putting aside the phrase diversity furies, I mean, if you want to mentally change it to Google is trying to correct a huge public headache and you're not helping, it tells you why the guy got fired. Let's for a second pretend it wasn't Google. Let's say it was Chipotle. And Chipotle, as we know, is trying to correct the perception that every once in a while, someone will eat in a Chipotle and get the norovirus and explosive diarrhea. So Chipotle is trying to train their employees a little bit differently. They're trying to handle their food a little differently. And they're trying to convince the public that they're not bad people who are just fine with the occasional customer getting a case of explosive diarrhea. So let's say a guy inside Chipotle writes a memo and the memo says, no, there are good reasons people occasionally get sick. There are no guarantees, especially when you're handling food that we don't irritate or blast with cleansers. Also, people shouldn't be so into hand washing. They're such babies. If you build up a little dirt immunity, a lot of surveys say this, things will be good for you. Also, this emphasis on reducing neurovirus, it indicates Chipotle did wrong. It's just the way that nature works. Look, that memo would have some good points, some less good points, some misinterpretation of studies. It would be a decent enough article if it was punched up correctly. You could run it in a lesser op-ed page, but also it would mean the guy would be fired. 
because Chipotle is being investigated by the government. And if we don't fire the guy, it sends a really bad signal. Inside the company, Chipotle memo, which is fake, Google memo, which was real, it would and did create such an uproar and a backlash. And it matters less for a profitable U.S. company if the uproar is entirely fair. What matters is that it exists and it's distracting employees and it's not helping business at all. I read that James Damore read this in a couple places. He put his company in a no-win situation. I would offer that when a billion-dollar company, sorry, a $650 billion company, and that's billion with an N, at the end of billion, I just want to note it. Anyway, when you're a huge company and one of the lowest guys on the totem pole puts you in a no-win situation and you have the ability to fire the guy, you fire the guy. This is all being said in a lot greater detail up here, up top, than I often do on the show. Uh, just a note, a note to listeners. I'm kind of inverting the spiel and the show top because what I'm trying to do is lay the predicate for the interview you're about to hear with a futurist named Amy Webb about Google. And as you will hear in the discussion, Amy and I talk about how Google says it stands for a lot of the virtues that it clearly does not stand for, like open and honest discussion with those who disagree can highlight our blind spots and help us grow. Does Google stand for that? Here's evidence that they don't. That was a phrase taken directly from the Google memo. And remember what the author of that memo had happened to him. Fired. And listen, I don't think the author was trying to deceive or arguing in bad faith. I really don't. I think if we're a different context, those thoughts should ideally be disputed with uh, different better thoughts, but not result in firing. It depends what the guy's job was, if he was like, an editor at Slate, let's say. There are other ways to look at it that he should have been fired by Google or in any other job. So odious were the ideas that he was advancing. What you think of the firing of James Damore, and like I said, I'm for it on purely practical grounds. What you think of the firing rests very much on how outrageous you think his arguments were. The alt-right, actually, let's be clear, and there's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine and some people who aren't on the alt-right but have been noting that they're appalled by the firing. It's really the right. Conservatives are appalled by his firing. But of course, that's easy for them to say because the next line out of their mouths are, I'm appalled by the firing, especially because what he wrote was entirely accurate. It wasn't entirely accurate. Take the part of the memo where he argued that women were more neurotic than men, therefore less likely to be drawn to tech jobs. I read the survey. There is a correlation. It's a moderate correlation. It's a 0.34. Secondly, this guy totally invents the rationale that being neurotic would make a person a worse engineer. A neurotic person might have greater attention to detail. Recent studies show that a neurotic person would be anxious not to disappoint people, be motivated to persist at his or her task and to be well prepared. There is an even bigger point here that if women, there are about 160 million of them in America, let's say they're slightly more neurotic, that's not really affecting the number of candidates that Google has to choose from. Google is the top tech company. They have legendarily lush benefits and pay. 
Uh, even if society were to replicate itself in a sexism-free zone, and let's say it turns out that the people who want to be engineers wound up having a gender breakdown of, I don't know, 60-40 or 70-30, whatever that second number was, the female number was, Google would be able to lure them over. There'd be more than enough female engineers to staff all of Google so that there was gender parity. It really doesn't matter if women are inherently less interested in engineering than men. Uh, even if you concede that they are, as a hypothetical, I'm not saying that they are, they would have to be so much less interested for Google to be unable to hire the best of them. Damore also talks about how men are status-seeking. He notes that that's why they're driven into manly but dangerous pursuits like coal mining and firefighting. Also, garbage collection. There was a part in the essay where he's talking about men being status-seeking, therefore they go into garbage collection. Anyway, how does this, what does this have to do with engineering and coding at a computer? I'm going to suggest that this men are status-seeking, therefore they want to be computer technicians. Maybe Damore has an overly heroic idea of what engineering entails. What I'm saying here is I think the guy was wrong. I think the argument was poorly argued. I don't think it used faked or discredited research, but it didn't take into account non-biological explanations for the paucity of female engineers at Google, like culturally embedded gender stereotypes, biased socialization practices, and a certain degree of masculinization of technological workplaces. Those words might be a little bit of a shiv into Damore's side because they come directly from Dr. David Schmidt, whose research Damore quoted. Here's another thing going on. There has long been this tendency to explain the lack of women in a certain field by asserting, sometimes based on research, that women are inherently uninterested in that field. That was said about medicine, the law, dentistry. Although for like 10 years and more in some cases, the number of women in med school or law school or dentistry has been around between 45 and 50%. It's not quite half, but it's close. Take also Title IX. The argument then was girls were just less interested in sports than boys were. And indeed, in the 1970s, only 7% of high school athletes were girls. Today, 42% of high school athletes are girls, which tells me that maybe it's true that women are less interested than boys, but how much less interested? And also the numbers always rising. So maybe actually something like that will happen with tech. Maybe the rise of women at Google or in tech will be a little bit slower. It seems to me that given all the other obstacles that women have faced in entering the field up until this point, that the Google gender breakdown of 80% men and 20% women in their tech jobs cannot be explained by saying, oh, it's all biology. I do not think that men are four times as interested in these lucrative jobs of the future. And I will be back with, oh, what the hell, a few more stray thoughts about the Google memo. But first, my conversation with Amy Webb.
This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where uh, it got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The future is female. No one told the guy who wrote the Google memo. He hasn't looked at the neonatal testosterone readings from the future. I guess the future is still a question mark for him. But joining me now to talk about this is Amy Webb. She's a futurist, founder of the Future Today Institute. She teaches at NYU, and she is the author of three books, including Data, A Love Story, and The Signals Are Talking, Why Today's Fringe is Tomorrow's Mainstream. Hello, Amy. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm well. So what do you know about just the environment in which such a memo was either encouraged or the author of the memo, James Damore, would have believed it was encouraged to Google? So I think the thing to bear in mind is that Google, as well as many companies within Silicon Valley, have, have come under fire for not making big enough efforts to diversify their staff. So it's it's pretty white, it's pretty male. I, I think that this has um, made a lot of people who work within those organizations probably more likely to pay attention to data from outside sources. There's places that might substantiate some of the feelings that they might have that their skills are not as valued um, or that their jobs may, may be under threat or whatever. You know, what's happened is this guy published a 10-page screed and used an internal mailing list that was owned by Google to distribute it. And it didn't just talk about stereotypes gleaned from possibly spurious academic reports or studies. What he really did was call into question um, the competence of his colleagues, which means that this is really a pretty basic HR problem. Yeah, but before we get to that, what I meant was, yes, that's the overall zeitgeist of Silicon Valley and especially Google. Their staff doesn't look like America and they're facing lawsuits from the Labor Department over issues of gender. But I was really more thinking about, so why would a guy think he should go forward with this memo? And I'm reading about that Google has this uh, culture of, hey, if you got an issue, let us know about it. Let everyone know about it. 
So it's it's possible that he felt emboldened and comfortable because of Google's culture to share his true beliefs yeah. with everybody. I think what's more likely is that, you know, in his conversations in the hallway and between staff and between colleagues that he might know there, there are other people who felt the same way. In right. fact, on Google's own internal messaging system, there's evidence of people, fellow Googlers, who support his view. And Wired had a great story showing some of the screenshots where people were constructively con- critiquing what he wrote and offering him ways to, to make the argument stronger and generally supporting his viewpoints. Now, we don't know how many people at Google um, you know, were represented by the small percentage that posted their support. But I, I don't think it's a matter of Google created this open environment where everybody feels like they can share. I think it's a quick and easy way to, to share your opinion using technology, right? right, versus having to say this to somebody's face. During a time, a strange time in American history, where you know some of those deeply held viewpoints that we all have, right, in some way or another, um, suddenly we feel much more emboldened to share those. And now we have the transmission to, to do it in a way that's, that doesn't, you know, that, that you don't get immediate criticism for, right? Right. Well, maybe he wouldn't have felt so emboldened to share them if he worked at, you know, Target or Ford or uh, Slate, let's say. And he goes, to, he goes to all these meetings and he doesn't believe in the message that the reason that we're not diverse enough is because we're not trying hard enough. There's a ton of stuff in the memo where it's, you know, to be sure, and I'm not saying that this is true for everyone, and of course sexism does exist, all these, you know, allowances to the other side of the argument. And I think that he thought he was arguing fairly, and then the guy gets fired. So I guess the question is, is it that this stuff that he was arguing, the neonatal testosterone and the biological determinism based on gender of what job you want, that is just so inherently sexist he had to go? Right. So I think there's a couple of things happening. Um, first of all, <laughs> in this in this modern era, um, data is actually making us dumber, I think, than it is than it is smarter. And mm-hmm. we no longer have to trudge down to our local library and like sift through the card catalog and fiddle around <laughs> with you know the Dewey Decimal System to find data, to find numbers that will substantiate the the beliefs that we have. And in a sense, what he did was to use numbers to normalize the beliefs that he had, and anybody can do that. The challenge here is that, you know, we are surrounded by data and you can take that data out of context or you can adjust it and mold it so that it more clearly reflects your own viewpoints. There's actually somebody who did this really well in a book called The End of Racism, and and it's written by Dinesh D'Souza, who's a very well-known, very conservative uh, you know, conservative thinker. Um, and, and that book was all about stereotypes. And in a sense, he was arguing, you know, there's there's a reason that people feel the way that they do about African Americans. Um, there's a reason that people feel the way that they do about Jewish people or Indian people or whatever. And, and it's all because of, you know, and, lo- and look at all this data that substantiates, you know, these viewpoints. And to be fair, those numbers did come from somewhere However, I could do this too. I could take crime data and conflate it with maps and take it out of context and be able to pretty effectively prove that five-year-old girls with blonde hair are ravaging the city of Dayton, Ohio, right? Um, you, know, you, you can make numbers do whatever you want. The problem is that as humans, 
we have far too many data points than you could possibly parse. So just because you know I happen to be a woman who lives on the East Coast and I'm five foot six and a handful of other data points, it doesn't mean that I am statistically likely to exhibit the kind of neuroses that would potentially make me a bad engineer, right? Um, and, and that's what he was talking about in the report. Yes. Let me let me just stop you there and say, I think, three things. One is, absolutely, you could use statistics to show any story. Uh, there's an excellent book called The Spurious Correlation Book, and they have a website, and I'm on it right now. And you should see how the divorce rate in Maine correlates to per capita consumption of margarine. It's crazy. <laughs> Fine. That is true. Data could be used to show anything. Then you make the point, but that doesn't mean that even what's true for all populations is true for the individual. But let me quote a part of the memo itself. Here it is, reducing people to their group identity and assuming the average is representative ignores an overlap, meaning populations have a significant overlap, but that doesn't mean that everyone within the population has that overlap. And the author of the memo says, it's bad to reduce people to their group identity and I don't endorse that. It does seem to me that we might be arguing essentially the question of, is what he's endorsing so inherently abhorrent that it must be dealt with and fired and snuffed out. I think what's going on here is all of us at some point feel insecure or we feel as though change is afoot and you know we can't control that change. And we will oftentimes then seek out ways to validate the feelings that we're having. And it's very possible. I mean, I don't know this guy. It's entirely possible that you know he was sensing that change. And in the midst of all of this, his limbic system kicked in. You know, we go we go out looking for information and data to substantiate and validate those viewpoints. But sometimes sometimes we come up with great data. I mean, it seems to me that the Bernie Sanders campaign was all based on the f- fact that we're trying to substantiate this feeling that we're having of the rich getting richer. And there's all this Piketty-esque data to show the gaps. And so we come up with solutions like a minimum wage of $15. I mean, except for the fact that to me and you and the fair-minded, that data seems accurate and Damore's uh, data didn't seem accurate. I don't know that there's much of a difference in terms of motivation, limbic systems, seeking out data, et cetera. Well, yeah, but, but nobody seeks out, no average person seeks out data to prove themselves wrong. Right. We seek out numbers and data to prove ourselves right. Right. And, you know, like I mentioned earlier, we don't have to go to the library to do this anymore. I mean, there's Pew, there's archive.org, there's the BLS.gov. I mean, hell, even Steve Ballmer um, has launched his own data site. Right? Oh, yeah. With, and beyond that, the American government. And beyond that, if you're Daymore, there's a site like Quillette, which I hadn't heard of until now, that essentially is, you know, pointing you to the studies that validate your feelings. Yes, that's right. And so here's the deal. While he may have had the the right to express that opinion, he didn't have the right to use the company's communication systems to do that. And, you know, this became a basic human resources problem as a result. Uh, He was fired not because of his ideas. He was fired because he distributed a memo throughout his workplace that called the competency of his colleagues into question. And that's a that would be a fireable offense regardless of where you were or how you distributed that information or whether or not it was about gender. Which current colleagues did he competency did he call into question? The ones doing the seminars or the female engineers. I think he all he was saying is that this is why fewer females are right. drawn to engineering. So was he saying anything about the ones already I mean, there? Yeah. So I think one of the things that he did in the memo was pretty carefully not call anybody out. But the way that I 
I think it would be hard to read those 10 pages and not infer that he was talking about the the people that he worked directly alongside mm. and possibly even the people that he immediately reported to. Yes, or infer that, uh, hey, I'm not saying anything now, but if we continue on this method of trying to pull in more engineers, we're not pulling from the top, let's say. I think firing was probably, just in terms of business, the right call. He caused so much disruption in his billion-dollar company. is like the lowest guy on the totem pole. Uh, there was a news item or a couple references in different news stories that said James Damore put his employer in a no-win situation. If you do that, you probably are going to get fired. Well, I think what's really happening here is we've, we need to figure out a way to have conversations <laughs> with each other. The economy is changing, technology is changing, our corporate environments are changing, and we have to be willing to evolve. And to me, a lot of this tension has to do with the fact that that change is really uncomfortable for people. I disagree that the lesson is we have to find a way to have conversations because this guy wanted to have a conversation and got fired for it. I, do you really think so? I think if he really, I don't think this document was about spurring a conversation. Do you? I think he thought it was about trying to have a conversation. I really do. And in it, he wrote, Google's left bias has created a politically correct monoculture that maintains its hold by shaming dissenters into silence. You can't look at this whole lesson and say, well, he was wrong about that. But you know, even to an outside observer, it's no secret that Google's culture is pretty progressive. If, if you don't feel like you're going to fit in to that culture, then it probably makes sense to go work somewhere where you can. Now, right, but Google's internal, Google, but Google's self-perception isn't that, right? Google's self-perception is we're open to everybody, you know, not the far extreme racists, let's say, or the Klansmen. But yeah, they their self-perception and what they put out there is different from what you just said. Well- it's nuanced. So yeah. I don't I don't yeah. think that Google thinks that it's open to people who, for example, have very binary viewpoints on gender, mm -hmm. right? Or, um, does, or, or at least they know that uh, they, sh they shouldn't present a public face that right. says they are open to that, especially now that they're getting sued by the Labor Department. But by default, then, that means they're not open to everybody. That's right. So in his note to Google employees, Google's CEO, Sundar Pichai, wrote, it's been a difficult time. I want to provide an update on the memo that was circulated. His next sentence, so the second sentence in his note to employees. First, let me say that we strongly support the right of Googlers to express themselves. And much of what was in that memo is fair to debate, regardless of whether a vast majority of Googlers disagree with it. However, portions of the memo violate our code of conduct and cross the line by advancing harmful gender stereotypes in the workplace. It's the third sentence, in other words, the harmful, uh, harmful gender stereotypes that the CEO should have gone with first. Maybe somewhere tucked inside his note to employees, he should assert that Googlers have a right to express themselves. But that is not the lesson. I don't understand why that's the lesson that he thinks it's important to forefront. It seems crazy to me. I don't even know if he believes that. But if he does, I have no idea why he thinks it's useful to put that up front when that doesn't seem to be uh, the overall takeaway from this incident. To me, it sounds like that memo was publicly asserting that there was no First Amendment violation or violation of U.S. labor law as oh, it related to that memo. You know what yeah. I mean? You yeah. know, so he certainly had the the ability to express his opinion, and Google wasn't quashing his opinion. However, as as a U.S. employer, the company has the ability to set the norms and standards and codes of conduct for within the organization, which it sounds like he definitely violated. And most importantly, you, you can't just 
send stuff over the company transom and expect that there's not going to be a consequence as a result. But it seems to me that except for maybe as a legal dodge, Google is clueless if it is still saying ours is a company with employees having the right to express themselves. I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that. I don't know if this is for marketing or if it's this just sort of general, this like general haze that everybody lives in, right? In the Valley where it's like a happy haze where we all believe that we all have agency in building this utopian future when in reality, like it doesn't work out that way, you know? Amy Webb, a futurist and founder of the Future Today Institute, an NYU Stern School teacher and author of Data, a Love Story. And the signals are talking why today's fringe is tomorrow's mainstream. Amy, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Be thoughtful and trustful and childlike. Be witty and happy and wise. Be honest and love all your neighbors. Be obsequious, purple and clairvoyant. <laughs> be pompous, obese, and eat cactus. Be dull and boring and omnipresent. Criticize things you don't know about. Be oblong and have your knees removed. Be tasteless. And now, is it the spiel? Nah, just some more thoughts, some pet peeves about the coverage. Among the irksome arguments about the Google memo, this was uh, Susan Wojcicki, the CEO of YouTube. She asked, for instance, what if we replace the word women in the memo with another group? What if the memo said that biological differences amongst black, Hispanic, or LGBTQ employees explain their underrepresentation in tech and leadership role? Well, if it did say something different then we might think something different. That would be different, wouldn't it? I mean, what if we replace the word women with raccoons? Then the memo would be really off base or maybe extra trenchant. I have to think about it. What if we replaced women with the phrase engineers who were handsomer than I am? That would be different too. There is another trend of using this memo to diss science, like throwing overboard all the carefully explained, rationally argued, calmly expressed facts about how science is legit when it comes to evolution and is compelling when it comes to climate change. You should really listen to science. All that work that we did, work that studies show went absolutely nowhere with the intended audience. But still, all that work, as soon as science says some crap that doesn't seem true, well, science sucks. Gizmodo, headline, men have always used science to explain why they're better than women. True. But men have also used science to explain why the earth is not the center of the universe and why you might want to wash your hands before surgery. Now, to be fair, the word science was in scare quotes in that Gizmodo screed. Wait, hold on. Let me go read it. No, it was less than 10 pages. So that Gizmodo article. But the article also did say, well, the Google screed (laughs) focused largely on gender. Many of these same arguments have been used to justify racism. Yes, but by racists. Science does not exist as a rebuttal to the instincts of racists. Science is a set of facts or observations that humans can do with what they want. A Nazi scientist will come up with Nazi things to do with their science, not because it's not science, but because he's a Nazi. Slate got into this game too. An article by Shanda Prescott-Weinstein was titled... Science is one of the reasons the Google memo happened. 
come on, it's the misinterpretation of science why the Google memo happened. Although, let's think about this. Science is one of the reasons it happened. Because without science, the real reason it happened sounds like this. It's the misinterpretation of... Yeah, so I guess we do need science in that sentence. And now let me stick it a little to the memo's defenders. All right, this guy, Daymore... Such a skilled engineer, right? Knows what it takes to be a good engineer. Not necessarily being a man, but a little neonatal testosterone doesn't hurt. What he's done is he's engineered a system that guaranteed his firing. Let's say Google actually has no commitment to workplace gender equity. They only say they care. It's all about optics. It's all about window dressing and getting the Department of Labor off their backs. Well, this guy's memo is this bright flashing arrow they can't ignore. I mean, if Google is only cynical and they only care about perceptions, you've got to fire this guy who wrote a memo that contradicts the idea that Google wants to diversify. But let's say, on the other hand, that Google really does care about diversity and avoiding hostile workplaces for women. Well, who's going to work with this guy ever again? So he's got to go. No matter what the input is, the output is Daymore is fired. Finally, and this one is small, but I have seen it on the right. This guy's memo was right on, the argument goes. His evidence shows that women are passive, higher in agreeableness, and less assertive. But you know who refuses to see this truth? Those social justice warriors. Those horrible, aggressive women, huffily, not agreeing to see reason, and just getting in your face about it. How can you women continue to disagree that women are more agreeable, passive, and less assertive? And that's it for today's show. Mary Wilson is just waiting for the amazing Google Doodle to commemorate this day. Maybe the O's will have a pair of mascarid eyes rolling skyward, and the loop of the G will trace the CEO's airplane's path having returned early from a European vacation. Chris Berube, GIST producer, has a little rule that says this. He'll stop you in your tracks with any conversation that begins, you know, prenatal testosterone. That's it. You're done. Berube turns on his heel. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, has an interest in acquiring audio rights to Harvard's 2012 Systems Biology Retreat. Oh, there was a James Damore skit which offended people. He didn't even know that. He just thinks it's crackerjack programming. Hey, let me tell you about the Slate Podcast Mom and Dad Are Fighting. There are three hosts, two dads and a mom. They all have different kids. And in the upcoming show... There is a listener question about learning to love your kid's sense of style, even if it's different from your own. The gist. You know, there is one winner in the Google memo. It's the I love my curvy wife guy. I love my curvy wife guy. We hardly knew you. We still attacked you, but we hardly knew you. Oomperu, depperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>